The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I'd like to invite everyone, if you would, please open your Bibles with me. We're going to be reading this morning from the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. For anyone watching or listening online for the first time, my name is Josh Hicks. I'm a pastoral intern and elder here at the church. Steve Clark, our senior pastor who would normally be preaching, is taking some well-deserved and needed time off this week. So I have the pleasure once again of presenting God's Word to everybody. In short, you're kind of stuck with me this morning. Let's begin reading our passage. Again, it's going to be taken from the 10th chapter of Hebrews. We'll begin reading in verse 32, and we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. Text reads as follows But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while... And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. All suffering in life no matter what form it takes, no matter how extreme or slight we might perceive it to be, all suffering that we can experience, especially prolonged exposure to it, it can cause us to become mentally and emotionally foggy. It can knock us off balance, and we can begin to think things that we've never thought before, and we can begin to question things that we've never questioned before. And things can start to feel very shaky, things that were once so solid and so sure to us. Suffering can even cause us to lose sight of such fundamental things, things like, I don't know, God maybe like God and His goodness and His love for us in Christ. I'm telling you the truth if you haven't experienced it. Extended periods of pain can cause you and I, Christians, to even temporarily forget the gospel. Now, it's not so much that we forget the intellectual propositions. That's not necessarily what I mean, though that does actually happen as well. It's more so that we forget in the sense that we can become desensitized to the wonder of the whole thing. That 
the gospel can actually begin to lose something of its gravitas, that it can lose something of its beauty and of its wonder for us, such that as you find yourself struggling through life just trying to hang on to God through the seemingly endless amount of hardships that keep coming your way like waves, you can begin to forget why you were even hanging on to begin with. And you can actually forget why you were even fighting in the first place because you can't actually feel it in your soul anymore. At least not like you once could. Now sometimes this this occurs because of a single dramatic experience. Sometimes it happens slowly over time through the culmination of several negative experiences. But however it happens, when you can't be properly affected by glory because your mind and your heart have been overwhelmed by hardships. When that happens, you can begin to lose hope. And when you begin losing hope, you lose endurance, the kind of spiritual endurance that all of us need to remain faithful to God amidst our trials in life because we're all going to have them. Now, this phenomenon that I'm describing, maybe you've experienced it, maybe you've known somebody that's experienced it. I believe it's precisely what's happening in our text to these individuals. We read in verse 32 that shortly after their conversion, these Christians, quote, endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And while it does say there that they initially endured through it all, Apparently, after prolonged exposure to this, it began to wear on them such that when the author writes this letter, he says in verse 36, in the present tense, you have need of endurance. You used to be able to endure, but now you have need of endurance. Their experiences with suffering took a toll on them, sapping them of their endurance in the faith seems to be what's happening here. So what I'd like to do this morning with our remaining time is to consider some, not all, I'm going to leave some pretty large things on the table here, so if I don't address everything, just know that I know, but I only have one sermon, so this is what we're going with this morning. I'm going to address some of the author's strategy in this text for helping these Christians. Because if we can see and understand how the Spirit of God is working in this passage for them, then maybe, hopefully, we can find some help for ourselves in our own hardships. So that's the goal this morning. So I want to consider a three-part strategy that I see in the text here, and I'll state all three parts now up front so that you'll have something as a a roadmap for where we're going in the sermon. So here's the three steps in the form of three imperatives. Remember who you were, know who you are, and decide who you will become. Remember who you were, know who you are, and decide who you will become. Now, each one of these steps, it's meant to to build upon the previous so that it's going to work something like this in the passage. Remember who you used to be and what things used to be like for you in order that, step two, by comparison, you might have better clarity concerning who you presently are and what your present spiritual condition might actually be. And you do both of those steps in order that, step three, in order that you can decide 
in this moment what course you need to take moving forward and whether you're even willing to make the necessary changes to accomplish it. So that it could be said something like this, remember what was, that you might better perceive what is, that you might better affect that which is to be in your life. Remember who you were, know who you are, and decide who you will become. So let's begin with the first step. Remember who you were. It's actually very easy to see because it's in the first verse that we read, and it's already in the form of an imperative for us. Verse 32 begins by saying, recall the former days. That is to say, remember back to a particular time in your life, a particular period from your past. And what we need to do then is we need to start asking a series of basic questions of the text to try to understand exactly what he's wanting them to remember and why he's wanting them to remember it. So we're looking for the what and the why over these next few minutes. So we should probably begin by asking, what period of their past is he asking them to remember? Verse 32 still, recall the former days when after you were enlightened. That is, look back on the period of your life when you first heard the gospel and you believed unto salvation. He wants them to remember what they were like when the grace of God first touched them and they became Christians. And so we ask, what were they like? And we've already mentioned it, but let's read it again, still in verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. That is, they were the kind of Christians that were able to endure. They endured through the struggles and the sufferings that God had allowed to enter into their lives. And so then we ask, what had God allowed to enter into their lives? Verse 33 now. We see that they were being, quote, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And even when some individuals in their congregation who weren't specifically being targeted, those individuals nonetheless shared in the persecution of others by aligning themselves with their fellow Christians, presumably to provide them with necessary care or aid. That's what it means in the second half of verse 33 when he says that some of them were, quote, sometimes partners with those so treated. And so then we ask, how were they treated? What were these afflictions that they were suffering? And verse 34 tells us a couple of them, it's not exhaustive, but a couple things that they were suffering from was being wrongly imprisoned and having their homes and their businesses raided, their property stolen. So remember when you were first saved, remember how your newfound faith exposed you to suffering, and remember that you were somehow enabled to endure all of it, all of it. You endured suffering. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured sufferings. Now, in my opinion, he does not want them merely to remember that they endured their past struggles. That's not the ultimate point here. I think he wants them to see that this kind of spiritual endurance, which they used to have, which they desperately need to get back now, that it is derivative of something. 
that they didn't just manufacture it on their own back in the day, that it's actually a byproduct of a deeper and a more significant reality. And so we should ask, how did this endurance happen for them? What is it the byproduct of? And that's in verse 34. It says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That is, they previously possessed at least two things back then, joy and compassion, which we're going to call love. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, and you loved those in prison. That is, you loved God, and thus you loved the people of God. And when you saw them hurting and in need, that love expressed itself in the form of compassion, a compassion that was willing to suffer in order to alleviate some of their suffering. So that according to this passage, their endurance was derived from a spiritual love and joy. That's what's happening in this passage. But if we were to reach outside of this particular passage into the broader scope of the book, the author includes more dispositions in other places that produce the same type of endurance. For example, in chapter 3, the author includes the idea of boasting in the things of God. Now, we don't usually use that language, so we can replace that. I think it's fair to simply say something like, they had a passion for the things of God. That's certainly underneath and all around what's happening in our passage with their radical love and joy, some type of passion that's taking place here too. So that I think we could fairly say that in this book, in this passage, we have love, joy, and passion working together to preserve the Christian soul in Christ. And this isn't a unique idea that we're embarking upon. This isn't anything novel that I'm offering you. Endurance in any context, whether it's religious or secular, it's always derived from these same kinds of realities, and we all know it to be true if we think about it for just a minute. When you are genuinely happy in, or in love with, or have a passion for something or someone, if it's at all possible to maintain that relationship, you do what you need to do in order to maintain it. Do you not? You endure in it. And if someone too quickly or too easily lets go of, let's say, a spouse or a family member or friends or career or hobbies or anything else in life, if they too quickly or too easily, without sufficient reason, let go of it, then it brings into question the level of joy or love they had for it in the first place. And all that I'm offering is that it's not very different with the things of God. I think that's what the passage is saying. So the first step of the author's strategy for helping these Christians is to ask them to remember who they were, that they were a people who once had joy and love and passion in God, and that that produced in them an endurance in the faith regardless of the trials that they had to face, and they had to face a lot of trials. And so we ask, why is he wanting them to do this? Why does he want them to remember this? And the answer, I think, is that he's asking them because he wants them to recognize something about themselves. Something that, if we're being honest, is very hard for us to recognize about ourselves. 
And it's probably even harder to admit it even if we do see it. I think he's wanting them to see that they have changed. And they have changed for the worse. Somewhere along the way, they changed. Again, verse 36 says, In their present condition, that they now have need of endurance. Now, this is going to be key for understanding the second step of the author's strategy, the know who you are. Know who you are in the present compared to who you were. For the author to say that they lack sufficient endurance, that is the same thing as saying that they lack those things from which such endurance comes. To say they've lost endurance is to say they've lost love. They have lost joy. They've lost passion. That it's gone or that it's at least significantly depleted. This is what I was saying in the beginning. Something has happened and they can't, they can't feel it in their souls anymore. Not like they used to. Amidst the hardships, they've forgotten and they've become desensitized to the glory and the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. The gospel that they used to so love and live for and fight for and endure for. They've changed. And so we ask, what have they changed into? Who are they now? So what I want to do here, I want to take some descriptions from the larger context of the book. So if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, this will be familiar material to you. Um, Everything that I'm going to go through here is either explicitly said about them in the book or it's implied to be true about them. Now we're going to move here in just one second when I'm done from them to us. And so as I'm reading through this, Be thinking to yourself, does any of this reflect what you have felt in your hardships? Because we're all going through something. Does this reflect how you have felt? What's described as seeds of disbelief were taking root inside of them. It wasn't that they had completely rejected the faith, at least not yet anyway. But they didn't believe like they used to. Their confidence, as it says in our passage, their confidence was waning. They were becoming more skeptical. They were doubting God's goodwill toward them and his love for them, which is a very easy thing to do when you don't understand why God is allowing certain things to enter your life, things that hurt. And in that state, the sin around them, the sin within them, it was working. It's always working inside of us. And it was working in them, and it was beginning to create a hardness of heart and a dullness of hearing, such that spiritual truth, what that's saying is that it wasn't affecting their hearts anymore like it was supposed to, like it used to. And as they started slipping further away from God, further away from Christ, they were having an increasingly difficult time discerning God's will. They were having an increasingly difficult time discerning between good and evil. Things were getting blurry for them and confusing. And with a lack of judgment, they were giving in more and more to compromise and sin. They were more and more capitulating to an unbelieving society and culture around them. 
They had what's described as drooping arms, an image of of spiritual fatigue and exhaustion, this feeling of, I just can't keep doing this anymore. And so in that exhaustion, they weren't striving to enter God's rest anymore. They weren't striving to enter His rest. They were losing their fear, the text says, and their awe and their reverence of God. God as a consuming fire who will one day judge the entire world. Their spiritual growth had not merely been stunted, it was actually degenerating to the point that they were needing to be taught over again basic gospel principles. And naturally, in light of all of this, their desire to gather as a church was waning. More and more of them were forsaking the corporate gatherings. Bitterness, it says, bitterness over their situation was taking hold of them, and they were losing, therefore, their gratefulness, their gratefulness for the gift of Christ and all that that was supposed to mean for their lives. Or you could sum all this up perhaps in saying they were losing their endurance because they were losing their love and their joy and their passion. This is how the first two steps play out in their lives. And so, like I said, now we need to ask ourselves, how do these steps play out in our lives? And so I ask bluntly, can you remember who you were? Can you remember what it was like when you were first saved or when God first became real to you? Can you remember the thrill? Can you remember the wonder? Can you remember the relief that you felt perhaps? Can you remember the zeal that you had? Can you remember how the message of the gospel was the greatest thing you had ever heard or experienced in your entire life? How you were perhaps willing to evangelize and witness to anyone. Perhaps willing to sacrifice more than ever before. Willing to give yourself for God and for God's people. How you perhaps even had dreams of spending yourself for the cause of the gospel in missions or in some other risky form of ministry. How you were driven in life by something that was bigger than yourself back then. How you had a sense of purpose in life. Perhaps you had a recklessness about you, the good kind of recklessness that young Christians suffer from, the, uh, the kind that makes complacent Christians a little weary of you because you're willing at that stage to do anything and to say anything and to give up anything or to go anywhere if you got the slightest whiff that that's actually what God wanted you to do. You would do it. Do you remember the joy that you had back then? The joy of feeling true forgiveness for the first time. The joy of having been washed and cleansed and accepted, accepted by God. The joy of knowing perhaps for the first time that everything was going to be okay, no matter what happened in your life, because you had Christ and you knew, you knew that Christ had you. you remember when heaven was real? I mean, really real to you. 
It was like it was always on the horizon. You could, it was so real, it was like you could almost see it and touch it at times. And you longed for that day when you would be able to see Christ face to face. Can you remember when Sundays were a great day? When Sundays were a great day because it meant, it meant being with the people of God and it meant learning and growing and worshiping. It meant singing and celebrating and at times even feasting with God's people. And you could, you could sense God's presence and the smile of the Spirit of God over everything that was happening and it was beautiful to you. It was beautiful to you. Can you remember when hell was perhaps more real to you? A time when sin was perhaps more serious. Can you remember when you prayed longer and deeper and truer prayers and you knew, you knew that God was listening and that he was going to answer in the best way possible? Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured because you had joy and love and passion. But now, looking back in comparison perhaps, perhaps it's true of you too that you've changed. We've all changed in some way, but... After some hardships and some trials and confusions and fears and disappointments and difficulties, all of this adding up and stacking up and weighing down on you, you are tired. Your hands are drooping and God feels a million miles away and your prayers are becoming less passionate. Sundays are less appealing. Worship can feel more stale. Sermons become more like lectures. You don't witness or spend yourself like you once did for the gospel. You've become increasingly numb to the idea of heaven and hell. It's becoming easier and easier for you to sin. And bitterness and resentment are perhaps increasing. And your sense of the glories of Christ is decreasing. Are some of these, or all of them, are they true of you? Know who you are. Have you lost something of your original endurance? Have you lost it because you've lost something of your previous love and joy for the things of God? Has your negative experience in life, has it taken something from you? Has it robbed something precious from you? Now, two clarifications I want to make really quickly. I am not denying that there are unavoidable emotional ups and downs in the Christian life. Christ said, in this world there will be tribulation. Paul says, the Christian in this life must suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with Christ. James tells us we Christians must weep with fellow Christians who are weeping, which put together simply means Christians will weep over their suffering in a world of tribulation. I'm not denying that. Our spiritual capacities can be weakened for a time 
at various points in life as God works in us the things that suffering is meant to work in us. So we're not always going to be on cloud nine. I'm not denying that. I'm not trying to manipulate you emotionally. If that's where you're at, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. If that's where you're at in a temporary moment of trial, nor am I denying, second clarification, I'm not denying the fact that we mature throughout life that we grow, and with that growth comes change in our mental and emotional state. Certain stages are necessary for a time, and then God brings maturation. And all married couples who have been married for a while know this because we all look back on a time that is often called the honeymoon phase. And we look back on it fondly, sometimes with a little bit of embarrassment, but we all agree, looking back on it, that it was beautiful and it was right and it was fitting for a time, but that it was also fitting that we grew out of that into greater levels of maturity in love and commitment. So we mature in life, and that's okay. So I'm not saying that because you're not constantly overwhelmed with emotions in a service or that you're not jumping out for joy out of your seat and weeping on your knees or something like that, that God perhaps has moved you or developed you emotionally in that kind of way. I'm not saying that there's something wrong if that's, that's the case, okay? But, but, those kinds of natural and necessary changes that we all experience in life should not include an unnatural, prolonged loss of that which is needed to endure in the ways that you're meant to endure in the faith. You might have emotionally matured over the years, but if you're no longer spiritually moved in the ways that you ought to be moved, and you've been there for some time, there might be a problem. And that's all I'm trying to highlight for you this morning. There might be. It's like Steve said last week, that this isn't a game. We have to be real with ourselves and be careful not to cover everything up under the possible falsehood that our spiritual decline is normal or that we've just matured is all. Maybe, maybe that's true of you, but maybe not. Maybe you've lost something that you desperately need to get back. Maybe you're on the verge of losing something that you desperately need to fight to hold on to this morning. We need to know who we are in this moment. Because we need to realize that we're, we're always on a trajectory. We're never standing still. We're always moving in a given direction. This moment is never just about this moment. It's about where this moment is leading you, where it's taking you tomorrow. And the hardships of life, they can move us to a steep slope, a steep and slippery slope. And the further down we let ourselves go today in our present passivity or denial or lethargy, the further we go down, the more momentum we create in that direction. And the more momentum we create in that direction today, the harder it will be to stop tomorrow or next week or next month. The Christians in our passage, they were sliding further and further down that slope, and many of them had found it to be increasingly difficult to stop now. 
Some of them were getting dangerously close to the bottom, dangerously close to giving up, dangerously close to denying the faith altogether. We need to know who we are right now and where we're at spiritually right now because like these Christians, if, if we are where they're at or if we're on the same trajectory as them, then we have to make a decision. We have to decide who we are going to become, which is the third point, third step in the author's strategy. Verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Do you understand what that's saying, what the author is trying to do right there with those two verses? He's doing at least two things. First, he's saying something like, after everything that you have been through, after having sacrificed so much over the years in the will of God, after having endured so much, are you really going to throw it all away now and lose the reward? Are you really going to throw in the towel and give up now after everything that you've been through? Are you going to sit back and let yourself slide into tragedy? It's a question of reason that he's trying to press into them and to us in the midst of whatever we're suffering this morning. Are you really going to give up now? Because if so, how sad. How sad, and forgive me, but how sad and how foolish it would be to go through all that and then lose the reward. Second thing that he's trying to do here in those two verses, he is at pains to let us know that the course we're potentially on really could be dangerous, eternally so. That the course we're on really could have a tragic effect, a tragic outcome. Notice verse 37. The author reminds us that Christ is coming back, perhaps sooner than we think. He says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And then verse 38, But my righteous one shall live by faith. That is, those who are declared righteous by God at Christ's return are so declared by a life lived in continuous faith, enduring faith. They don't give up. But for those who do give up in the verse, those who are said to, quote, shrink back in verse 38... God says, my soul has no pleasure in him or you or me if we're where they're at. And if there's any confusion over what it means that we can not gain the reward, verse 36, that God can have no pleasure in us, verse 38, he makes it crystal clear in verse 39 when the author says that those who shrink back are the ones who are, quote, destroyed. Now, for those of us who believe that if you are truly born again, you cannot lose your salvation, let me just say right here up front, I believe that, so don't pick up stones to throw at me just yet. Hear me out for a second. I believe that. 
We believe that at this church because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. Those who are truly born again cannot lose their salvation. A Christian is squarely in the hand of God and nothing and no one can pluck him out of it. I believe that. I think you should too. But there is a danger in passages like this that we can easily fall into, and I would offer that we perhaps do fall into them a little too often. And it's the danger of nullifying the intended spiritual impact of warnings like this, what they're meant to have on our soul. When this is said of those of us who are suffering the same spiritual decline as these individuals in our passage, or those of us who are on a similar trajectory as they are on, when the Bible says to us that we might not attain the reward, and that God might not have pleasure in us, and that we might be destroyed if we continue on this course, we are not supposed to refuse the possibility that such things could actually be true of us. Because we can't possibly be lost. Because we're the elect of God. We're sure of it. We make a profession of faith. A constant theme throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is the theme of individuals who think they are gods, but whose lives and actions and affections betray their confession of faith. Many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, Matthew 5, 7. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified, a castaway, 1 Corinthians 9. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, because it's possible you could fail the test, 2 Corinthians 13. Be diligent to confirm your calling and your election, 2 Peter 1. If the Bible has shown a Christian where they really are in this moment, in their present spiritual condition, and that they have unnatural, prolonged, unrepentant sin in their lives, and that they're lacking proper passions and endurance, A proper response from a Christian is is not one that dismisses the possibility of damnation outright, as uncomfortable as it is. A proper response of one who is truly saved, truly born again, is that they actually do believe the Word of God and its warnings to them. That they do believe that such a thing could be true of their lives, should they not course correct. And so they rightly fear and they tremble And with a newly repentant heart and a dependence on the Spirit of God and faith in the sacrifice of Christ, they work. They work with countless falls, countless failures, yes, but they work. And they work with everything in them at making the necessary changes so that they are not lost. And thus, they are not lost. And thus, they demonstrate that they are truly God's elect. What's a popular verse that us Reformed folk, really enjoy. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I would say no different, amen, absolutely. But Paul doesn't stop there. That's not the whole verse. He then says, 
And his grace to me was not without effect. I worked. I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. We have to be balanced in this kind of a way when we approach these kinds of passages. If you find that you are where these Christians are at in this passage and in this book, but then when these kinds of warnings occur, you just say, nope, doesn't apply to me, I'm a Christian. Let me offer to you that you are in a dangerous spot this morning. You have overapplied or misapplied or altogether failed to apply something in your theology. Because you aren't allowing the text to have its intended effect on your heart and mind. You aren't allowing it to produce a proper godly fear and trembling, which in turn produces repentance, which in turn produces life. There are two things, there's more than this, but two things a passage like this is doing this morning. It is preserving and it is saving. Preserving. If you are truly born again, which is my assumption of absolutely everyone in here that professes Christ that I know, if you're truly born again, then these kinds of warnings are serving you. They're not condemning you. They are serving you as instruments of God's grace to preserve your soul in Christ. So hear it and hear it well and let it have its effect. Don't brush it off too quickly. Saving. If perhaps you are one of the self-deceived and you're not truly born again, then to dodge this warning and the grace that it's meant to provide, to do that is to potentially dodge the very call of God that would save your soul. So all the more, hear it and hear it well and respond. So God, in His grace, is either preserving or saving souls in a warning like this. And I just leave that on the table for everybody And may God balance that and apply that as he needs, because I don't know your lives. I don't know how it needs to be balanced or applied. One last thing. We'll end on this. There's another grace in the passage for us, certainly a more gentle grace, and therefore I think a more potent grace for us. Listen to what the author says in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Do you hear what the assumption is in this passage? Because if you do, you would know this is singing amazing grace over everyone in this room right now. That after everything that I read to you in that list earlier about just how far these Christians had slipped and how dangerous and grim their situation looked, the assumption here is that the grace of God was bigger and is bigger than all of it. That their spiritual decline under their suffering does not mean that they are not Christians. That God's grace never abandoned them through all of it. Which means that when he gave the warnings a moment ago, he gave them in faith and in love and in the belief that they are indeed God's children. 
And he believed that they would hear and make the right corrections, that they would decide who they would become, and that their decision would be to become those who endure in the faith. So please hear me on this. No matter where you are at this morning in your walk with God, no matter how much you might have shrunk back up to this point under the weight of all the pains and all the confusions and all the fears and all the suffering and all the trials, all the hardship that stacks up on all of us in this life, no matter how far gone you feel, you are not too far gone is what this passage is saying. God's grace has no more abandoned you than it abandoned these people. No matter how close you might be to letting go this morning, Christ can, and I believe is, still declaring over you, you are mine. So lift up your drooping hands and fight. Hold on and endure through the suffering a little longer. A little longer. What does he say in the passage again? Yet a little while and the coming one will come. It's not as long as it seems. If you've truly trusted in Christ, you can and you will, by the grace of God, preserve your soul no matter what you're going through this morning. But you do that. You do it by God's grace in Christ. But God's grace causes you to engage. This is a battle. It's a spiritual warfare that we're all engaged in for our souls. For some of us, it's an 11th, 11th hour Hold arms. Who will you decide to become this morning? Remember who you were. Recall the former times when God saved you and what it was like when you had a fresh and vibrant love and joy and passion in God. Remember it. Know who you are. Allow yourself to see where you might have slipped because we've all slipped in some way. Allow yourself to discern what your present spiritual condition is this morning and be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself and with God. And decide who you will become. Will you be the one who gives up or continues on a downward spiral, a trajectory that truly can end in tragedy? after everything that you've been through this far, thus far? Or will you be one who holds on to faith and course corrects and preserves their soul? If you've professed faith in Christ, the assumption of this passage is that you are the latter, that you will preserve your soul, and that the grace of Christ is big enough and deep enough and wide enough to empower you to do it. And... It's deep enough to cover every sin and every shortcoming and every failure thus far and every one you will commit moving forward as you fight to make the necessary changes. So fight, Christian. Fight. Endure. It's a call to endure. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are that you're not only God, that you're our God. Thank you that in your grace, 
you warn us as is needed, that you encourage us as is needed, and that you empower us as is needed, that we might be saved. I trust that you've done that this morning and that you've done all of those things to that end for our eternal good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.